Hello and welcome to the Rare Possessions podcast. I'm your host, Nick Belletti, and with me is Jared Riddick, archivist from Book of Mormon Central. Today we're going to be talking about Chapter 7 of Life of Nephi by George Q. Cannon. We're continuing on our ongoing series on this book. This time we're, we're going to be bringing up some comparisons that Cannon makes between Lehi and Moses, which is an interesting comparison and one that's made a, a couple times in some institute manuals and things like that, but mm-hmm. let's flesh that out a little bit more. So what are some of the comparisons that can be made or some sources that we see this comparison being made? Uh, you see it in a couple ways. Uh, Lehi is Moses as patriarch leading them out of Egypt, leading them out of Jerusalem. Uh, the Lord guides Moses by a pillar of fire. He guides Lehi by the Leahona. Seen in a couple ways. You see some of the children being rebellious, some of the children being righteous. And usually it's two of the sons being righteous. This is the word two righteous in the, with Moses. You have Joshua and Caleb. There's some unique parallels there. We actually have a Noai, uh, Noai 268 that was published on this. Has some really interesting parallels with Lehi and Moses that Lehi himself made and that Nephi made. One of the challenges here is we see the Israelite history and Moses is the figure. He's huge. He is the father of so much of their culture and their 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 existence, really. Is the reason that Nephi is including these themes, these thematic elements of comparison, is because he's trying to show Lehi as the beginner of a new dispensation type, would be a word. Type of Israelite, even? I I think it is. Noel Reynolds has had some interesting stuff on that. We hesitate to use the word political because it's so loaded these days, but you can look at what Nephi is doing here 20 or 30 years later when he's writing this as almost a political tract where he's setting up the foundation of the new Nephite culture in a parallel like unto Moses. He's setting up Lehi as that new figure, someone they can rally around, and clearly it worked because they remember him throughout uh, Nephite history. Yeah, He wasn't a forgotten founder. Going all the way to the very end, they had people who claim pure descent. It's something that Nephi was doing intentionally, I think. And I think it also helps Nephi's line as well, because Nephi was being shown as the rightful heir to that. Mm-hmm. So we also have, geographically speaking, we are near the Red Sea, mm-hmm. and we have Ishmael and his family, and they have now married. The daughters of Ishmael have married Nephi and his brothers and so and on. Zoram as well. And Zoram. And so we have this idea where... It feels like the people are prepared enough. They spent enough time in the valley there where they have been the last, presumably the few few months, maybe even a year or two. We don't even know the, the length of time, but they're finally packing up and they're moving. Mm-hmm. And so they are almost pushing this Moses narrative even a little further with the people moving moving camp and performing sacrifices where they do have camp. Wandering so in the wilderness. On. Yeah. So there have been some some connections uh, recent scholarship has helped us see connections to actual sites near the Red Sea where this has taken place. What's the historical context? Why do we, I mean, Cannon goes through this too in his book. What's the what's the geographic setting for this and why why does it have any bearing? I think because it can be grounded at, well, for us today, because we can track them, we can ground this in reality. Uh, these won't be theoretical sites. People have identified potential locations for Valley of the Mule River Layman, potentially Shazer, and moving on to the, what we'll talk about next time in Nahum. But it's something that's real and that's grounded. And it's not something that people, I mean, the average American at that time probably thought Arabia, this is desert. Right. But no, he can hunt. He can find game sufficient enough to support quite a large number of people. Uh, I think this is interesting for us. It, it runs counter to, to, I think, 19th century narrative at least. Absolutely. 
And it also seems to prove, or at least it seems to support, again, this Moses narrative that they're by the Red Sea, which mm-hmm. was often connected to, to Moses. Moses. So we have a lot of talk about compasses, the mm-hmm. Liahona, as their guide at this time. What was the significance, or the at least the historical context, for compasses? Uh, compasses, magnetic ore is around at this point. In Lehi's day. In Lehi's day. I don't know of wide use. Uh, there's an interesting paper that Robert Smith wrote, a short paper called Lodestone and Liahona, about three pages. That's, that's worth a good read on this. Also an entire book by uh, Alan Miner called, about the Liahona that was through Cedar Fort a few years ago. That's some interesting stuff here. There's certainly use to a degree where it wouldn't be totally out of the blue for someone, especially someone that's probably in the higher social status to, to recognize and to identify. It's of curious workmanship. Yeah. The fact that it can, it can guide them is not the surprise. Well, the fact that it has a word. Yeah. And the fact that it's, it's well, Liahona itself is, uh, oh yeah, compass, it has the word compass, but Liahona itself isn't actually used by Lehi. We don't get the word Liahona until Alma 37. So we have to figure out quite where that came into, what language that, that descended from. But it's something that they knew. And the fact that it's made out of brass, which is a non-magnetic metal that wouldn't interfere with the compass is also saying something as well. Yeah. What, would, what does this say then about Joseph Smith's authorship of the Book of Mormon? Why would he include something that in the 19th century probably would have been kind of curious to include? I think it's, an, uh, history, uh, it's a note that he didn't have too many contributions to this. Uh, this is something that was curious for Nephi. Probably it's, Nephi had time to look at this thing. Right. He kept it with him. I mean, they used it to guide them out of the wilderness as well later on in Nephite history. Uh, they kept on using this. He spent time with it. He's looked at it. and. He's like, these are the things that still come to mind about it, Yeah, even to this day. The writing on the Liahona always makes me think, and for a long time I tried to imagine how would writing shift, but I think of the writing on the Liahona is kind of the way we look at our scriptures. Somebody keeps on sneaking in and putting things in there when we're not looking. <laughs> the Liahona, writing on the Liahona is very, it's easy to understand, but yet when they read it, they're shaken to the very bone because it's something that they knew or maybe they should have known and each needed to be reminded of. And I believe that happens in this chapter as well. Liahona is kind of a type of the scriptures, a type of Christ that way. Interesting. Canon kind of attributes the, their length in the wilderness at this point to the murmurings of Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael. I don't know we can entirely lay that at their feet. We know that Lehi himself, we see in chapter 16, murmurs. Yeah. There's some issues there. And Nephi stays remarkably silent on certain aspects of the eight years that they're in the wilderness. So we don't know what happened. But we can assume there's a little bit of blame to go all around. In these, in these cases there. But and there's nothing wrong the, with that. There's still a little bit of the progression narrative yeah. here that we're talking about, where Laman and Lemuel and the sons now empowered by wives and other people. They that feel more agree- like men than they did before. Well, and they, they have other people agreeing with them. Yeah. It wasn't just Laman and Lemuel. It's now a growing group of people that are murmuring against the inspiration of the prophet and their spiritual leader. The phenomenon of the mob there is a really interesting thing to consider. Yeah. Yeah. There's other voices backing you up. You can do a lot of things that you wouldn't otherwise do. And it furthers their, their progression down that path. Yeah, which is unfortunate for them. All right. So that's a lot to look at in Chapter 7. So stay tuned for Chapter 7 of Life of Nephi by George Q. Cannon. The Life of Nephi, the Son of Lehi, Chapter 7. While they were still encamped in the valley of Lemuel, Lehi had a very important dream or vision, 
which caused him to rejoice because of Nephi and Sam. For he had reason to suppose that they and many of their posterity would be saved. He told Laman and Lemuel that he feared exceedingly because of them. He related what he had seen to his family, and he exhorted Laman and Lemuel with all the feeling of a father who loved his children and was anxious for their salvation to hearken to his words. He preached and prophesied unto them and bade them keep the commandments of the Lord that they might not be cast off from his presence. He also continued his conversation to his family upon other subjects connected with the Jews and their future. Nephi, also about this time, had remarkable manifestations given by the Lord to him. It is evident they have remained in this valley of Lemuel for some time. Whether they cultivated the ground and raised crops, we are not informed. But we are informed by Nephi and his record directly after he and his brothers had returned, accompanied by Ishmael and his family, to his father's camp in the valley of Lemuel, that they had gathered together all manner of seeds of various kinds, both of grain of every kind, and also of the seeds of fruit of every kind. While they were yet in this valley of Lemuel, five marriages were arranged and consummated. Nephi and his three brothers took each a daughter of Ishmael to wife, and Zoram married the eldest daughter. We may well suppose that Nephi married the girl who pled so earnestly in his behalf on the journey from Jerusalem when his sisters were so enraged as to desire to take his life. Such love and devotion as she then exhibited would be likely to awaken feelings of admiration in him for her, even if no more tender feeling had been in his breast before. Thus far Lehi had faithfully fulfilled all the commandments of the Lord which he had received. He had forsaken his home, had launched into the wilderness with his family, had obtained the necessary records to preserve the knowledge of God and all the prophecies of the holy prophets, had his company strengthened by the addition of Ishmael and his family, and now had the gratification of seeing his sons united to wives. The Lord had been with him and blessed him, and he was now in a better condition to cut loose from the rest of the world and to fulfill the destiny the Lord had in store for him and his people than when he first escaped from Jerusalem. His stay in the valley of Lemuel had, therefore, been necessary to effect these preparations. Nephi also, during this period, had emerged from boyhood to manhood. Under the influence of the Spirit and revelations of the Lord, his character had rapidly developed. Though young in years, he was now an experienced man, full of that confidence, self-reliance, and fearlessness which the consciousness of being a servant of the Lord, of being acknowledged and sustained as such by him, always brings. However weak he might be himself, he knew that in the strength of the Lord he could accomplish whatever might be required of him. His energy, robust faith, and willing obedience must have been a great comfort and help to his father in those days. Nephi had this advantage. He was young and vigorous, and could the more readily adapt himself to the new methods of life which they had to adopt in the wilderness. While Lehi, more advanced in years, would find traveling in this wild and desert country an enduring hardship they had to encounter, a very great change from the mode of life to which he had been accustomed in Jerusalem. Though they were now in these favorable circumstances for the prosecution of the enterprise required of them by the Lord, they had yet to gain an experience, hard and trying to their feelings and faith, without which they would not be fully prepared for that which they had to do. Their forefathers, after escaping from Egypt under the leadership of Moses, were not permitted to enter into and possess the land at once. They had to wander in the wilderness for forty years. 
It was not necessary that so much time should be consumed by the children of Israel in going from Egypt to Canaan, but it was necessary that before entering into the land and changing from a condition of slavery, such as they had occupied in Egypt, under the iron rule of Pharaoh, to that of a free people, rulers in fact, with full power to enact and execute laws to govern themselves, their land, and their surrounding peoples, they should have experience. Stubborn and rebellious as they were, it required forty years to give them the necessary schooling, during which period all who, at the time they left Egypt, were over twenty years of age, with two notable exceptions, Caleb and Joshua, passed off and a new generation took their places. So in the case of Lehi and family and company, they needed training, though not for so long a period as their forefathers. While they were inexperienced, trifles annoyed and worried them. They had not learned to patiently endure and submit to privations and hardships. Their previous lives had been passed, doubtless, in circumstances of ease and plenty. Want had been unknown to them, but they now had to lead a new life. The comforts to which they had been accustomed they had to dispense with and not complain at their loss. In the beginning of their experience in the wilderness, many things were viewed as afflictions and dreadful to bear, which, after a few years of such life, they scarcely noticed, especially if sustained by the Spirit of the Lord and the knowledge that they are obeying His requirements to accommodate themselves to new circumstances and conditions of life. After all these preparations had been made in the Valley of Lemuel, the voice of the Lord came to Lehi in the night and commanded him to take his journey into the wilderness the next day. When he arose in the morning and went to the door of his tent, to his great astonishment he saw, lying upon the ground, a fine brass ball of curious workmanship. Within the ball were two spindles. One of these pointed the way that they should go in the wilderness. This ball, or director, was called Liahona, the interpretation of which is a compass. But it differed in several respects from what are known as compasses. We are told by Alma the prophet that there cannot any man work after the manner of so curious a workmanship. It was prepared by the Lord to show Lehi and his company the course which they should travel in the wilderness. And it worked for them according to their faith in the Lord, the pointers moving according to the faith and diligence and heed which they gave unto them. There was another peculiarity about this curious instrument. There was written upon these pointers a writing plain to be read, which gave them understanding concerning the ways of the Lord. And this was written and changed from time to time according to the faith and diligence which they gave unto it. Had they always paid strict attention to this writing and not been slothful and careless, they would have traveled a direct course and made greater progress in the wilderness and would not have been so much afflicted by hunger and thirst. But Laman and Lemuel and their brothers-in-law, the sons of Ishmael, were frequently in transgression. The children of Israel were led through the wilderness in the days of Moses by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. We are told that God went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way. In like manner, the Lord designed that Lehi and his company should be led by the compass, which had been so wonderfully given to them. After receiving the compass, they gathered up all that they could carry with them and the remainder of the provisions which the Lord had given them, and seed of every kind and their tents, and crossing the river Laman, they traveled for four days in nearly a south-by-southeast direction until they came to a place which they call Shazer. Here they camped until they could hunt for game to sustain their families. We suppose that in the wilderness in this neighborhood wild animals were numerous, 
and they therefore selected it as a temporary stopping place. Their method of hunting was with bows and arrows, stones and slings. After collecting what they had killed, they returned to their families at Shazer. From this place, they traveled in the same course, south-southeast, following the direction of the compass which led in the most fertile parts of the desert and which were near the Red Sea. Thank you for listening to the Rare Possessions Podcast from the archives of Book of Mormon Central. For the latest information on additions to the Book of Mormon Central archive, or to inquire about archive items like this one, visit us online at archive.bookofmormoncentral.org.